This is the Water Cooler podcast brought to you by the Menzies Research Centre for the 7th of September 2018. I'm Nick Cater. Later on, we'll be asking if our new Prime Minister is baffling the Canberra Press Gallery by talking over their heads. I'll be speaking to a gallery veteran and former colleague, the Australian's Dennis Shanahan. We'll be following Scott Morrison's pilgrimage this week to Albury, the home of the Liberal Party, in the footsteps of Sir Robert Menzies, and discussing what that says about his approach to politics. We'll begin, however, with a Father's Day tweet from a union boss that made the headlines this week. John, we saw that, didn't we? The tweet from uh, John Secker, the uh, Victorian head of the CFMEU. Uh, we can't actually repeat what it was on air, but it was, um, yeah, it was. I thought it was pretty off. What did you think? Yeah, I thought it was extraordinary, Nick. Um, And a lot of people, when they saw it, they would have been um, just at at first blush appalled that Mr Secker has brought his kids into his own political battles in such a vulgar way. But it's worth pointing out that the message that Mr Secker had had his children put up on that whiteboard or on that piece of paper was actually directed at the Australian Building and Construction Commission, which is the tough cop on the beat, tasked with restoring the rule of law and some semblance of order to the construction industry, which we know has been bedeviled by this behaviour for quite some years now since the Gillard government first dismantled the ABCC in 2012. So Mr Secker, I mean, it was it was vile. There's no questions about that. But let's be very clear that the message was intended for a law enforcement organ of the Commonwealth, which is makes it even more astounding in my view. Yeah, they seem to have taken on law breaking as part of their business model, part of their modus operandi, haven't they? And uh, John Secker uh, has oh dozens of uh, of convictions, dozens of fines personally, as do many other leaders in the CFMEU. It is troubling, um, and I did some uh, a bit of analysis about two years ago, and I checked it out again this morning, and the numbers have got even worse. But more than a quarter of the CFMEU's organisational staff, so that is people who hold paid positions within the CFMEU or the CFMMEU now, have either got a conviction or they're awaiting trial for a conviction. So that gives you an indication um, that this isn't just a few a few bad apples. This is endemic, serious, ongoing flouting of the law. Um, and you have a look. There is uh, $15 million in fines that have been amassed since 2005 alone. And a lot of those fines were handed down after the Fair Work Act came in and the running Gillard government seriously lowered the penalties for industrial law breaking. So it's quite it's quite astounding. You wrote a piece in the Financial Review this week, which got uh, got a lot of people talking, in which you, you really presented, I think, what we might call the dystopia under a Labour government, given that they've... Um, signalled that they will substantially wind back the industrial relations laws in this country. So the first thing I looked at in that article was what's going to happen to collective bargaining. Now, for listeners who don't know, one of the ALP's best achievements, in my view, during the Hawke-Keating era was dismantling centralised wage fixing and replacing it with collective bargaining, but at the enterprise level. So the idea was that individual businesses would reach collective agreements with their workforces and those individual agreements would take into account the needs of that particular business. And so what you'd have is flexible productivity enhancing agreements. 
Just to go over this again for the benefit of people who may not be familiar with the old era of industrial relations, in the old era pre-enterprise bargaining, agreements would be struck across the whole sector with a union. That's right, isn't it? It was a sort of one-size-fits-all approach applied to every employer in that sector. Uh, with enterprise bargaining, uh, an employer could do his own individual uh, negotiating and therefore come up with an agreement that was more suited to their business. That's, that's essentially it, right? That's right. And also under the, the, the former system, you had the arbitration commission that would basically, when, when both sides couldn't come to an agreement, the arbitration would, commission would make a ruling that would, like you say, cover every single worker in a particular industry um, across the whole nation. And so enterprise bargaining was a really overdue recognition that in Australia, economic conditions do vary from region to region. Um, some businesses are bigger, some businesses are smaller. And what works um, in Western Australia might not work in the Northern Territory or, dare I say it, Victoria or Tasmania. So it was a really overdue reform that turbocharged productivity throughout the 2000s and the 1990s. And what my piece touched on is the fact that Labor basically wants to rewind the most advantageous aspects of enterprise bargaining by allowing unions to coerce entire industries into going back to industry-level bargaining. So you're going back to that straight-jacketed, one-size-fits-all approach um, that served Australia, frankly, very, very poorly in previous generations. Yeah, I mean, I think you and I would have fundamental philosophical problems with this. I mean, the first problem is that we know that anything that becomes centralised generally works pretty inefficiently. Uh, decisions are always best made at a local level in whatever sphere, industrial relations or whatever. The other thing I think that troubles me is the question of individual freedom and the freedom of individual employers to run their business as they seem fit. You know, say, for instance, if, if employers in, in an employer in sector A, uh, spoke to his workforce and for various reasons they were prepared to accept, you know, perhaps a lower wage or, 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 or longer hours to help that business get through its current difficulties. That would be banned, wouldn't it, if we could brought back this system of uh, collective bargaining or pattern bargaining as it's sometimes called. That's right. Um, it would be. And another, another prong of Labor's plan that compounds that is they want to empower the Fair Work Commission to step in and arbitrate disputes more freely. And so what you would have there is, um, for example, the Oakey North coal mine where they had um, a pay dispute that I think it ended up being in excess of six months. But um, you had basically union demands that were totally uncommercial and you had the employer willing to give some ground, but it was by definition an intractable dispute. Um, what Labor wants to do is allow the Fair Work Commission to come come in and essentially play God and decide what are the right working conditions and what are the right wages for this, you know, multi, multi-million dollar enterprise. Um, and to my mind, there's no reason to think that that's going to work any better in Australia in 2018 than it did when the Soviet Union was setting prices in Russia in the 1960s. Um, as you say, Nick, this government does not have the knowledge, it doesn't have the, the on-the-ground time and place insight to allocate resources as effectively as the free market does. No, indeed. And and I think this opens the way up, doesn't it, for more industrial disputes uh, of the sort that were all too common, I think, uh, 20 years ago. But 
now are thankfully rare. Would you say that's going to happen or likely to happen under this system? I would I would even say it's almost certain to happen because Labor wants to, um, it's flirted with the idea of removing secondary boycotts. So that's the idea that a whole range of workforces can take a, t- take industrial action to effectively punish an employer they don't like. They flirted with the idea of removing that, but they have committed to removing restrictions on sympathy strikes in pursuit of a sector-wide um, wage increase. So in layman's terms, what that means is if the entire logistics sector or the entire port sector in Queensland or New South Wales or even across the whole country, they can pull up stops and they say they can say, we're not going to work again until you grant us a 10 to 15% pay rise. Um, now, there's some people out there who might go, well, that's the, the fundamental right to strike. Um, but it's worth noting here that we're talking about protected industrial action. So that means that our, our legal regime will grant them complete impunity for taking that action. They are 100% protected from any adverse consequences. Um, and so what you're talking about in practice here is really highly unionised industries will have a blank cheque to engage in extremely costly and disruptive industrial action and effectively hold employers to ransom um, because that's what it'll be because they'll have nothing nothing to lose by conducting this extremely disruptive industrial action. In fact, the more disruptive they are, the more likely they will be to get their demands. So it's, um, it's a very grim outlook in my opinion. Now, John, your first policy brief on, on industrial relations is due out next week. We'll talk about that more next week, but just to give a bit of a taster of it, you, you show in there how dramatically union membership has fallen. In the private sector, how many workers these days are members of the union? So it's hovering about 9.5%. Um, and let's be clear, that's not a totally insignificant amount of people. It's still numbers into the hundreds of thousands. But it's less than one, less than one in 10, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, less than one in 10. And to put that into perspective, there's now more than half a million more Australians who run their own business, who are completely self-employed, than who hold a union ticket. So one of the first points I make in the brief is when we think of unions, we need to be really clear that they're a minority interest group. They don't represent even... um, the, the, The proportion of the workforce they represent is trifling compared to the amount of people who go into the free economy um, and basically go only get to eat what they kill and have to stand on their own two legs. So I think they're just, you know, this, this whole idea that unions are, by definition, the vanguard of the greater good um, is something that I think needs to be called into question and certainly scrutinised a bit more. Yeah, and, and, and it's, it's, it's made even more acute because they're concentrated in specific industries, aren't they? I, I can think of, for instance, construction, heavily unionised, the wharfs, heavily unionised, the retail industry, relatively heavily unionised. Uh, and then, of course, you've got the, the public sector, health and education, where union membership has actually increased. But in the private sector, if you work for a private employee, uh, in any of any most sectors, you, you're probably not going to encounter unions much at all, are you? No, that's absolutely right, Nick. And one of the things that I observe um, in the brief is that unions seem to have really um, managed to entrench themselves in industries which aren't really subject to much competitive pressure. And that's for a few reasons. They might be industries where the biggest player, the biggest incumbent is the government. Um, Also heavily regulated industries where 
you're not going to have many entrepreneurs going to come in and try and disrupt. Education is a really good example of that, tertiary education. I believe Australia has one, possibly, actually, no, it's two, two private tertiary universities. So the industry is where they are regulated. They don't, also another relevant factor, they're not exposed really to globalisation and global competition that forces a lot of Australia's economy to better itself each year. Um, and I don't use this word pejoratively, but they unions have really thrived in protected areas of the economy. Um, and I, in my view, in my analysis, that's given them a leg up for some of their quite uncompetitive and restrictive work conditions because the workforces um, who are under these union agreements are less likely to simply lose their job if they make their business less productive. Um, so I think that that's a, another interesting thing looking looking in that um the and so and certainly one of the key findings is more than half of the unionised workforce their salary is effectively paid for by the taxpayer. So you know at its worst it it can be rent seeking. Um, but it does it does show though that unions have um, particularly when you examine their broader political outlook, unions have a vested interest in enormous amounts of government spending and generous spending on health, education, the public sector, and all of that. Um, and that's not just for ideological reasons, it's for self-interest reasons as well. Yeah, that's a point that's made very well by Robert Carling uh, from the Centre for Independent Studies in a report just out this week, which we'll be coming back to later. The question he asks is if people are dependent on the public purse for part or some of their income, or if they're in an industry where they, they go to the government and get... Uh, support in one way or another, they're going to have an incentive to vote for the party that's going to give them most. Uh, and and I think that that's a big, big issue we have to come back to. Back to the question of unions, John. Um, your generation, if I can broadly put you in a category like that, uh, they're, they're far less likely to be union members, aren't they, than the over 55s? That's right. Uh, it's between people who are aged between 15 and 19. Um, a mere 4% um, are currently union members. Now, on one hand, you might think, oh, that's because a lot of 15 to 19-year-olds are studying. They haven't really entered full-time work. Um, but on the other hand, consider this. A lot of 15 to 19-year-olds are working in hospitality, in retail, in jobs where they don't. They're not earning a huge amount of money, and I guess in the in the quintessential sense, they are vulnerable workers. Um, they're not skilled. They often will not have lots of options, and they're relying on the hours they do work to fund their lifestyle. And so, in many ways, that fifteen to nineteen year old bracket, people who are not confident um, in the ways of the world yet, they would, in the traditional sense, be a group that you would think might benefit from union membership. Um, but they're actually um, less than half as likely as their parents to be union members. So that certainly going forward doesn't bode well for the future of the union movement. Um, and you can see it sharpens the imperative for the unions to really push for legislative change that's going to further entrench their position in the industrial landscape because the more they can be entrenched um, by way of laws as opposed to popular support, the better their prospects of survival will be. So how do you think Labor is going to fare going into an election with this uh, very strong, uh, retrospective, regressive uh, legislation in the wind on unions? Are people going to say, good on you, or are they going to think it's a bit strange, or are they going to be turned off? 
Well, Nika, um, that's that's something I've been pondering a little bit recently. And I think on one hand, uh, it's always been the case in Australia that people really only turn their mind to the opposition and what the country would look like under a change of government closer to the election. So I, I do think that we will see more scrutiny of Bill Shorten his union links and his pro-union agenda as the next election draws closer. Um, But I I do believe that it's not something which the mainstream of Australia is enthralled with. I was looking at um, some polls earlier this week that indicated that of all the big public institutions in Australia, unions are rated as the second least trustworthy, um, significantly behind the federal government, significantly behind the Treasury, the Reserve Bank, virtually all the big institutions you can think of. Um, And I think when you couple that with the growing realisation that most people aren't union members, most people's immediate families aren't union members, um, people people really do, I, I don't believe, view unions as this, you know, this social justice outfit that perhaps they once were. Um, and you couple that as well with looking at what unions have done in the past um, in Australia's economic sphere. They were particularly notorious in the 60s and 70s for rolling strikes, for causing disruption, and a lot of people saw them as a nuisance. So I do think we'll see the blowtorch come on, Bill Shorten, in the in the near to medium term. Um, but it's obviously it's incumbent on people like us and the coalition to make sure that they are held to account and that people understand the real consequences of re-enshrining unions at the heart of our economy and our workplace relations system. Yeah, well, certainly at the Menzies Research Centre, we've identified it as one of our policy priorities uh, from now until the election. We'll be coming back to this uh, regularly, I suspect, John, starting next week with your report on unions and the union business model. Look forward to talking to you about that as the week progresses. On Thursday... Scott Morrison gave his first major speech as Prime Minister, not in the National Press Club in Canberra, as Prime Ministers customarily do, but at a Menzies Research Centre community forum in Albury. James Matthias was there with me. James, your overall impression of the day, how did it go? The event itself was community-focused. There were people there with the school captains. Um, there were community leaders, counsellors, you know, real people, not like the corporates you get um, at the press club. And it was done in a way which was focused on a community, on, on a, like a community forum. Yeah, let's have a listen to a little bit of that speech now. We've got to look after our mates. That's what I believe. Every Australian matters. And that's why we have a safety net in this country to protect people. But it works as a trampoline, not as a snare. Best form of welfare is a job. And our safety net, our social safety net, enables people either to bounce back up and to get back up on their feet, or it provides them with that place of comfort and support that they need during challenging times in their lives. As Australians, we look after our mates. As Australians, our goal is to make a contribution, not to seek one. And it doesn't matter what walk of life you're in. We always want to look in our community and this room is full of people who always make that choice, wanting to make a contribution rather than take one. See where they can contribute rather than where they can take out. I don't believe that for you to do better, that you have to do worse. 
I don't think you need to be taxed more for you to be taxless. I don't think that for someone to get ahead in life, you've got to pull others down. I believe that we should be trying to lift everybody up at once. That we get away from this politics of envy. James, I don't think Scott Morrison could have given that speech at the National Press Club. Uh, or if he had, he would have got a very strange reaction, I suspect. Absolutely. I mean, the the community element of it, you know, he was there on this... He wasn't on a raised platform. He was on the same level as, as the people sitting around him. He was able to engage with the whole audience walking around the room um, Look, looking people straight in the eye on their level that just would not have worked in Canberra. Yeah, well, they've got a long way to go, but I would have thought in terms of product differentiation, if nothing else, Scott Morrison's put a clear marker in the ground. But the other thing, as you say, is authenticity. Uh, and in this uh, contrived media 24-7 world, it seems to me politicians are, are less and less uh, willing to bear their souls because of the backlash they fear might come. But if you do so, then I think you've got something that's pretty marketable in politics. What do you think? Scott's a very plain speaker. What Scott did yesterday was um, engage with people in a way that made him seem so sincere that he believed truly in what he was saying. And he laid out a set of values that will guide um, his policy development for Australia and in the lead up to the election. I think that's very engaging for, uh, uh, you know, m millennials like me who have um, previously been disenfranchised with um, empty promises that are never delivered. One of the things that stood out for me was when he was talking about youth unemployment, he highlighted the government's record on this, which has been fantastic. You know, we've had the best uh, the largest growth in youth employment in 30 years last financial year. And he said that if you get a young person into a job and not on welfare, by the time they're about 22 to 24, you save them from a life on welfare. And he dwelled on that point for a while and you could really see how passionate he was about getting young people into employment. One thing I think uh, Scott Morrison did in that speech was to deal with this nagging issue of fairness. You know, it's the word that Labour have been using for many years now, you know, we're the party of fairness, whatever that might mean. But I thought Scott Morrison addressed that rather well. Have a listen to this. I believe in a fair go for those who have a go in this country. I think that's what fairness means in this country. It's not about everybody getting the same thing. If you put in, you get to take out. And you get to keep more of what you earn. And that doesn't matter what your level of ability is. The reason I was at Young Car yesterday up in Brisbane with young disabled Australians who are an inspiration because they're having a go. They wanted to live on their own. They wanted to be in their own accommodation, living together, having the same choices as other young Australians. They're having a go and they're getting a go. If you're running a small business, you want to have a go, you should get a go. That's why I think your taxes should be low if you're running a small or medium-sized business and that's what I've delivered. A fair go for those who have a go. But we can be even stronger if we adhere to these values. So, James, do you think the Prime Minister is going to be able to effectively knock this fairness thing on the head? And if so, how? The Labor Party think, seem to think that they own the word. They own the right 
to fairness in this country. And it's just not true because you look at their policies in contrast to ours. They would rather confine people to a life of welfare. They would rather confine more people to the disability support pension. You know, the Labor Party thinks that for one person to get ahead, they need to take away from another person. And what the Prime Minister said yesterday in that one powerful paragraph knocks that on its head. He believes in fair that fairness is by you having a go and you having the best possible um, frameworks to be able to do that, but it's not at the expense of another person. That was the Menzies Research Centre's Executive Officer James Matthias talking to us from Canberra. To get a slightly different perspective on the speech and to test out my hunch that it was quite an unusual occasion, uh, I turned to Dennis Shanahan, my former colleague at The Australian. Oh, look, I think that uh, Scott Morrison is very quickly getting out there to paint a portrait of himself. Uh, he's, uh, he's not well known in the community. Uh, and so he needs to get out there and tell people what he's about, what his convictions are, and where he intends to take the Liberal Party. This is a pitch to Liberal voters, the lost Liberal voters. He wants to get back to the Liberal Party, and I think he's uh, approaching it in the only way he knows how, and that is to project the image of himself as he is, as an authentic person, and, and a bit sort of folksy and religious in it. But I think that's what he's about. Two, two things I thought about that speech this week, his first major speech as Prime Minister. One's the location, the other's the content. Uh, normally, you'd expect a Prime Minister to give his opening words at the National Press Club. Do you think we should read anything into the fact that he decided to do it in Albury instead? Oh, absolutely. I think that what he's trying to do is appeal to the Liberal Party first. Uh, and he is trying to pull together the tradition of the Liberal Party. And we've seen during the times of Tony Abbott and Malcolm Turnbull, a lot of debate about you know, is this really the Menzies Liberal Party anymore? Uh, Malcolm Turnbull claiming to represent uh, uh, the Menzies ideal. Tony Abbott suggesting he was more of the conservative who represented the Menzian tradition. And then in the middle, you had John Howard, uh, who was very much in the Menzies tradition as far as policy and, and, and approach is concerned. So I think Mal uh, Scott Morrison has addressed his first major speech to his own people, and I think this is a recognition uh, that the real problem he faces, the immediate problem he faces, is pulling together his colleagues and the party, which has become very divided and fractious, and so I think that that, that was what he was doing at Albury, handing up, giving up the opportunity to say, look, I am the Prime Minister, here I am in my suit addressing the press gallery at the National Capitol of the National Press Club. Uh, and here I am putting forth a whole, uh, you know, manifesto. He didn't do that. And of course, that's the second point. As far as the content is concerned, uh, he has directed it towards uh, what you would call the ordinary voters. He, he's, he's given people an impression of himself. This was, again, part deliberate by Scott Morrison in essentially speaking over the heads of the gallery, direct to people, as, as John Howard often used to. Yes, I think that's right, that the, uh, he's picking his targets, uh, and so far we haven't seen any in-depth interviews 
uh, with anyone from the press gallery. Uh, and it's interesting, we haven't seen, you know, the big uh, uh, interview with, about policy and what he intends to do. He has stepped right back from that. He's trying to talk to people in the language that they appreciate and absolutely playing up the difference between him and Malcolm Turnbull as leaders. I thought it's a long time since I've seen or heard a speech from a political leader that did really concentrate on values and what he believed as a person as opposed to what he was going to do or what he was going to promise. They're very few and far between. Keating's Redfin's speech on what he believed about uh, trying to help Indigenous Australians, it was a bit about policy. It was also about what he believed in. And it's interesting that that's one of the speeches that people always talk about. Uh, when a leader does speak from the heart, uh, and in this case, there wasn't any great message there apart from I am Scott Morrison and I'm here to help the Liberal Party uh, and I'm here to talk to people. John Howard's headland speeches were much more about values and general principles than about uh, distinct policies. So I think that's probably the closest parallel I can come to at the moment. That was Dennis Shanahan talking to us uh, down the line from Canberra. Well, I'm delighted to say that we're now on iTunes. We have the technology um, and, and you can listen to this podcast at your convenience and download it through the iTunes app. Uh, and please, any feedback, we'd love to hear what you think of Water Cooler and, and what sort of things you'd like us to do, how we can make it even better. Uh, but in the meantime, thank you for listening. Thank you.